Hi, good morning and welcome to Boom It's on the Blockchain. We're over in Europe this week for our 60th show and we've got a special guest, Zara Zamani. How are you, Zara? Hi, thank you. I'm great, Alistair, and thanks for inviting me. No, no, no problem at all. So, so just as we start the show, can you give a bit of background about yourself to introduce you to the viewers? Yeah, sure. So, uh, hi, everyone. I'm Zara, Zara Zamani. I work today with Chromeway the Nordic leading blockchain company as chief solutions officer. I'm a blockchain solution architect. And um, it's a table turn now. I interviewed Alistair, was it three years ago? <laughs> three years ago on Chain Talk. So yeah. we're going back in time. We're getting older. That's the problem, Zara. <laughs> Kids are getting bigger. <laughs> yeah, now it's the table turn. So yeah, I'm a blockchain solution architect. My expertise have been working with this uh, brilliant technology for the past nine years almost. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Happy so, to be. Yeah, great. So, so we'll just kick on and we'll talk about uh, Chromaway and Blockchain 2.0, where you're working right now. So, give a bit of background about the company and what the sort of products and services they're working on. Yeah. So, uh, Chromaway is the Nordic leading blockchain company. Chromaway was founded in 2014. And it started actually with enterprise blockchain solutions. So uh, we did a lot of um, you know, enterprise um, projects like land registry in Sweden and then the same uh, project in Ecuador. And, and uh, uh, eventually uh, we uh, realized that, you know, the market is, is not ready. The market is not there. Enterprises don't understand the technology and they don't understand the value of the technology. So. And we, we understood it. We knew how it's going to change things. So we, we were like, okay, why don't we build stuff ourselves instead of actually having to convince all these enterprises to get into this technology? And that's uh, when um, Crowley made a turn. So from um, enterprise blockchain creator, uh, we moved to creating Chromia, a public blockchain uh, protocol. And then we started bringing our ideas uh, on table by building them. We started stepping into blockchain gaming world. So My Neighbor Alice, we launched My Neighbor Alice. Uh, uh, well, the game is not launched yet, but the, we had an ICO of My Neighbor Alice in 2020. And then um, it was a big success. And then we continued that success with more games. Uh, Miles of Delonia, Chain of Alliance, and now recently Cloud Saga, another game. And then we stepped into DeFi with multiple uh, projects, um, NFTs and music. Co-Write is also a big success. And now we're stepping quite big to uh, fashion tech. So we recently acquired a fashion company to you know, revolutionize fashion industry using blockchain technology. But we also do a lot of projects in tokenization, which could be a, a topic of interest of yours specifically. Uh, but we started with real estate tokenization. So... We acquired a company called uh, Blockhouse in, in Netherlands, and uh, we are tokenizing real estate and real estate funds uh, with that, uh, starting with that. But then we are developing our own um, tokenization protocol to basically be able to tokenize any real uh, or physical assets. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So so let's before we go talk about tokenization, Zana, speak a bit more about fashion and why is the fashion industry should be interested in blockchain? Because a lot of people obviously are in the fashion industry and now blockchain's here. You know, where's the connection and where you see the future of this? I think that, I think that's, that's one of the spaces that is going to grow tremendously. Uh, 
because um, there is a lot of different aspects that blockchain can affect fashion industry. Uh, coming from this, the, the world of design, decentralization of design process, because today the design process is very much centralized to a few premium designers that make a lot of decisions for, for the rest of the world when it comes to design or for the brands specifically. And so decentralizing that and, and engaging more designers and, and for that then definitely giving access to younger designers uh, who are not probably necessarily from the most privileged geographical locations. Um, a designer in Kenya, a designer in Southeast Asia could equally have the opportunity to work with bigger and premium brands, but also engaging the fan and community, right? So, and that is what, where, where DAOs uh, on blockchain come into the picture, decentralized autonomous organizations come into the picture using blockchain in the world, engaging fans, engaging other designers in upcoming collections of the brand. And when, when fans and designers are more involved with the brands, that means the brands are producing the, the designs that are more popular among the customers. And that eventually brings down the overproduction and that's a big support in sustainability. So that's another aspect that the blockchain can uh, tremendously support fashion industry with sustainability and overproduction through fan engagement, right? And then uh, many other things like ownership of the design, because that is one of the biggest challenges today in the world of fashion. Designers com are complaining about not having ownership over their work. Like we have a lot of that in fast fashion with platforms like Sheen or similar platforms that there's a lot of complaints that the smaller designers believe that they stole their design and you know this is their design so the proof of ownership of that art piece is actually what uh, blockchain is going to bring to the fashion industry as well so there's a lot of different aspects and you know angles that blockchain can definitely support in this um, space a lot and will it work similar to the way sort of nfts are going to work with art Oh yeah, definitely. NFTs are going to be huge in this world and uh, especially wearable NFTs, right? Uh, NFTs that you can wear in your digital meetings or digital appearances. Uh, after pandemic, we have now on, on average, every professional spends um, at least 15 minutes uh, of their week time um, in, uh, in digital meetings. And where wearable NFTs can definitely minimize a lot of um, physical fashion purchase. Uh, did I lose you, or did uh, or I? Kind no, of no, feel I'm just there just now. I just uh, it's believe it or not, it's just like super sunny in Scotland right now. So I had to shut the <laughs> blind, you know. So it's um, so I wasn't, expe wasn't expecting the sunshine of Scotland. Yeah, exactly. I would be equally surprised if we had sunshine in Sweden now too. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, so wearable NFTs are going to be huge. So, uh, you know, like now we are talking digitally, right? I could totally wear a wearable NFT and you wouldn't even notice that I'm wearing an NFT jacket uh, or NFT accessories, etc. So uh, definitely they're going to play a big role. Mm -hmm. Perfect. So what about the tokenization project and tokenizing real estate? Can you go in a bit more depth of uh, what your company's doing with that? Yeah, so uh, Blockhouse uh, is the name of the project. It's a lot about uh, 
giving opportunity to younger generation to be able to purchase real estate from very young age and to be able to uh, contribute or, or to be to participate in the real estate space uh, with the minimum funds that they have. So uh, it's tokenizing a physical building and you know then you can buy into that real estate with the tokens. You can buy in a square meter of a real estate basically or, or you know so it's, it's again a lot about um, and then also then the ownership of that real estate is uh, recorded on blockchain so on an immutable ledger per se right. So it's proof of ownership, but also accessibility, but also, you know, allowing um, public uh, to take control and, and participate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so when's the first project going to be live then? Um, with, with the broadcast, I guess we the, we will have, um, I think they or, there is already, the, the, the project is already live. We have around 300 plus million dollars fund that is being tokenized and managed through Blockhouse today. Uh, and there, are, uh, there, there will be more to come on Blockhouse. Mm -hmm. and, and that's all part of Chromaway? That's all part of Chromaway. Mm -hmm. so, so how many people work in Chromaway now? Uh, so we have uh, scaled up tremendously in the past one year. Uh, last year, January, we were 30 plus. And today that I'm talking to you, we are 238 across 27 countries in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's like the huge scaling up with that, especially within the blockchain industry and the downturn in the industry right now as well. Yeah. So exactly. So just before we move on from here, what future projects are Chromaway working on that are going to be of interest to you? Uh, you will hear a lot about Chromaway in the future in the fashion world, in gaming, and also sport. So, so these are the areas that we are going very strong in. And plus, we, uh, we are also uh, taking part in a quite big EU project, uh, which now is, which was a three-phase uh, project, and now we're in the, um, the, well, almost final phase. But we are among the top three in, in that project, and the winner of that project is going to be you blockchain provider. So um, that that is one of our uh, next year uh, big projects too. But you will hear a lot about us in fashion, gaming, and sport, like I said. Okay, that, that's super interesting as well. So, so let's move on to our next topic that we were speaking about is that uh, in 2022, you've been spoken about as... Uh, one of the 10 most impactful women in technology. So congratulations on that award. So so how is that affecting your life right now? And uh, what uh, interesting projects have you got coming up off the back of this? Yeah, well, thank you for, for that. It came as a surprise to myself, um, you know, because um, I, I love my job. I, and, you know, I, I just uh, try to, to be best at what I'm, uh, I'm good at and, and do it. And, uh, I was very honored to be among the top 10 most influential women. But um, I guess my whole exciting life is coming after all of this, right? So the, the, the more you're recognized, it's natural that, you know, you will be exposed to more exciting projects, uh, to more exciting individuals that you can collaborate with. So 
I'm quite grateful for all of these recognitions. But what I would say, besides all of this fun part of it, uh, it brings a lot of responsibility too, right? Uh, because it, it, it says 10 most impactful women. And then I have to represent these women, right? I have to, I have to be a good representative of women in this uh, very, very male-dominated space. So um, it also makes your life more difficult because you have to make sure that uh, you also give equal opportunity to to other women to grow, and you know you make sure that this you have to make sure that this space is as gender diverse as possible because uh, today it's not. I'm happy to say that in Chromaway we are very gender diverse, so we have quite a number of uh, female um, colleagues. Uh, but but I'm lucky that I work in such a space. It hasn't always been like that in my life. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So so what? Uh, so within your company, Chromaway as well. What percentage are women compared to men? Um, I don't have the exact percentage, but I'm hundred percent sure it's at least fifty fifty. Right, if okay. not women. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember we work in a Swedish organization, and gender diversity is is quite uh, important in this mm -hmm. part. Of the world. So, Not in all part of the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, well, this is good. So, we'll we'll basically we'll move on to the next one because I know we want to speak about this quite a lot as well. Yeah. So, so gender diversity in Iran. So, yeah. um, maybe not be is um, similar to that in Sweden. So, obviously, people are watching on the news. You know, they're seeing what's actually happened. You know, the, the morality police uh, arrested um, Masha Amini. And essentially, from my understanding, she was um, beaten to death in prison. And really, it was just for uh, what she was wearing, or was it what she was saying? So if you want to give a bit of background about the whole thing that's happened for people to understand, because I don't think it's getting the same coverage in America as it should be right now. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think it's getting the coverage anywhere in the world that it should be. And, uh, and, and part of it, of course, is the media biases. But part of it is also that it's so unrealistic. I think is uh, you know as an Iranian who left Iran when I was a child, and when I traveled there as an adult, like I couldn't believe it as well. And you know I understand that it's very difficult for a non-Iranian born and raised in a democratic country or at least relatively democratic democratic countries, it will be extremely difficult to digest what is happening in Iran, right? But, uh, but um, I can tell you a little bit of background. So Iran was a super, super modern country, right? And we had this Islamic revolution in late 70s. When uh, then, uh, since then, the Islamic uh, government has been uh, ruling Iran and uh, we have a supreme leader in Iran. Well, no, not we anymore. There is a supreme leader in Iran that uh, is relatively, well, the power that the supreme leader has is a lot more than um, the parliament or or the president or or anyone else and and they he is a pure dictator so ayatollah. yeah he, he's definitely yeah the ayatollah ayatollah khamenei he's a dictator and um it's natural that you know the more that it gets close to uh, power being coming back to people the more they're threatened uh, threatened and frightened by that 
the morality police uh, was, uh, I think, was uh, it, it started from day one in Islamic regime, but it was just called differently. It was it was called setade uh, amre be maruf, and it was uh, it wasn't called morality police. And uh, for your information, when I was to go to high school, my brother and I were arrested multiple times by them because they thought that we were a couple. And every time my mom had to come and prove that we are siblings. And for, so it was that bad that you couldn't even walk with, a, with the opposite gender in the street. So every time my brother and I walked from school back home together, we were like kind of arrested by them. So, uh, and then this, it was changed the name to morality police because they weren't on the street back then, but then they started coming on the streets and starting arresting like, you know, just, just like guarding the streets. And, and the, these guarding was always only for women. And it was to make sure that women are dressed properly, that you know their bodies not showing, or their their shirt their shirts or are not short, or their hair is not showing, and they don't have uh, too much makeup, or or you, you literally had zero choice of what you want to wear, like you had to comply with it, and if you wouldn't comply with it they weren't going to be kind and, you know, nice. No, they would beat you up. They would arrest you. They would treat you horribly. And this has been going on for 20 plus years. So if you talk to any woman in Iran, they have an experience with that. They have been either arrested by the morality police, beaten up by morality. I have been arrested. I have been beaten up by morality police myself. And every single other Iranian girl that would ever travel to Iran would experience that. And everyone was, Masa Amini was not the first one who actually died of this. Masa Amini is the first one that made it international, that went viral. There are so many, many more before Masa Amini who were a victim of this inhuman group of people, right? But, uh, uh, then uh, the, 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 they took Masa Amini in custody for her a little bit of her hair showing. And if you look at even what she's wearing, it's like super, super modest, like super complying. It's just a little bit of her hair showing. And then, uh, of course, she was beaten to death. And this went viral. We, today, we live in the age of technology and information. And, you know, information flies much faster than you think. And uh, And then this started this whole protest in Iran that is rooted in a social cause this time, right? We had a lot of protests in Iran for over the past 43 years of the Islamic regime. But majority of the times, these protests were rooted in a political reason. But this time, it was a social reason. And it was a reason that everyone related to. It could be any of us killed on the street. It could, and no matter if you're a political person, if you're complying or not, you will be killed. So then people were like, okay, I will be killed anyhow, so let me just go out and fight for my freedom. And, and that's how this whole movement started. And they were trying to convince people that we didn't kill Masa Amini because of hijab, but throughout this convincing, they killed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more to prove a point. So, I mean, that's definitely not proving a point. Yeah, I think there's over, what, 500 or 600 people now being killed since the protests? Yeah. Exactly. And then around, I think, uh, around uh, less than 100, I think around 80 or 90 children. And when we say children, uh, we have children being killed from age five 
seven-year-old girls, eight-year-old girls, 10, 12, 50, like we have around 90 under 18 years old children being murdered. And then thousands of children today in prisons. And actually two of these children are sentenced to death. So they're gonna be executed, 15 and 16 year old boys. Yeah. That, that, yeah. that is unbelievable. So so just to give a bit of background for people to understand, there's obviously Sunni and Shiite Muslims in uh, the Middle East. So for the Iran, you know, who's the predominant Muslim? And then is there both types of Muslims in Iran? Yes, yes, definitely. We have Shias, majority of the Muslims in Iran are Shias. And then, but we also have a lot of Sunnis in the, Kurdi, the Kurdish area, in the Baluch area, we have, or, or uh, southwest uh, of Iran, we have quite no, a lot of uh, Sunnis as well. And, and in, interestingly, this is a very good point that you brought up, Alistair, because Iran is a land of many, many religions, right? Uh, Ir Iranians were Zoroastrians before Islam came, and then, you know, even after, we have a, a quite big community of Jews, Christians, Zoroastrians, um muslims baha'is and some of these religions are forbidden and you know you're not allowed to be loud about practicing them or you you will gen generally be arrested for being them like baha'is some of these religions are very much oppressed like jews in iran and then uh, or even sunnis in iran They're very very much oppressed and throughout all these 43 years the regime always tried to, to project an image that you know uh, sunnis and shias have a in Iran and Kurdish people are uh, they are always looking for independence because they're Sunnis and Kurds and Baluch people are always, so this is the projections that you know the regime always try to project and and actually separate people from each other right to make sure that people are not unified but what we see now during this protest is totally the opposite that how much love and how much support people of Iran have for each other, regardless of what their religion is, what their gender is, what their ethnicity is, because Iran is also a land of so many ethnic groups, right? And people are supporting each other, in, like in Balochistan, which is like southeast of Iran, people are protesting to support the Kurds in northwest, to support the Persia, the Fars, or the Lur, or all the ethnic groups. The Shias are in full support of Sunnis, Sunnis are, Sunnis are in full support of Shia because people are fighting for one cause and that is freedom from the Islamic regime of Iran. It's not about religion. It's not about, no, it's just, they just want this regime gone because Iran was always a peaceful country without having such dictatorship uh, there. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I was watching the World Cup and obviously when USA were playing Iran, um, it was the standing ovation by the uh, Iranian players and the, the, the fans to, for the USA, primarily because of what was happening right now. Yeah. So, you know, from a political perspective, I think when, you know, Americans look at, you know, you're sort of indoctrinated to think that, you know, Iran's your sort of mortal enemy, Venezuela, places yeah. like that. Now they need oil <laughs> because of Russia. Well, now <laughs> change the rules. But... It was amazing for the people there, and you watch the protests that were happening there, and the supporters of both teams, USA and Iran, both coming together at that end of the game, 
you know, about what's actually happening to the to the women and the people in Iran as well. So, you know, it's amazing, like, sports sort of passes over political divide, and then when people start to understand it, and I think from, you know, that, that sort of opened the eyes to a lot of people in, in the USA as well, because when we're actually watching the game, and I watched it over there, it was... Um, you know, you, you, they were coming in, they were going close-ups to the fans as well. They were all having similar um, T-shirts and protests as you're wearing today as well. And then it was, and they were talking about it briefly and what they were actually supporting. And it's it's amazing that you think like sport can highlight these things. But as you say, the regime sort of wants to just, you know, put the lid on. You know, if one way or other, we're going to sort of stamp this out and we'll just go back to the way it's going to be with the Ayatollah running it. But do you think that's going to happen this time, or do you think this time it's going to just change? Uh, I have a lot of hope this time. I have. I, it's not easy at all. It's not easy at all. It's uh, very difficult, I have to say, and it's very expensive. We're losing a lot of loved ones, uh, and people people are preparing themselves for for everything. A- anything could go wrong. You know, you could lose. I could lose my family, or you know um lose my cousins and you know uh which a lot of people have have lost a lot of family members but that's that's not only the mental pressure that is to, a lot right and um a lot of other consequences but i think at this point everyone of us we are willing to pay that price and we are we are willing to share that price with each other so so that it makes it easier for us to pay that price and I am extremely hopeful and I'm extremely positive that even if it's not going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month, this is the start of their end. I'm very positive about that. Yeah. And so how does it affect the, the Kurdish people? Because obviously and I do this website, Rebuilding Iraq. So I know about oil and gas projects in Iraq. I don't know, my <laughs> limited knowledge of the, what's happening in religion. It's Mohammed's my friend that's out there. He always says, you know, you just stick to oil and gas and leave the rest of it to me. But basically, you know, you've got Kurdistan in Iraq, you've got Kurdistan in Turkey, you've got Kurdistan in Syria, and you've got the Kurds. And obviously I didn't realize that the big Kurdish population now in um, Iran as well. So how does that affect things? Because I know they want to break away and become their own country, and this creates multiple problems. That's obviously what happened in Turkey recently as well. You know, the bombings that happened there in Istanbul, they were blaming the Kurds, and then suddenly Turkey's attacking Syria, which is, you know, but they're attacking the Kurds in Syria, or they're attacking the Kurds in there as well. How does that all fit together with Iran, and how are the Kurds involved in these protests as well? Uh, well, well, for sure, uh, over the past decades, there has been a certain group of Kurdish uh, people who want their independence. And I, I I can't really say much about that because I really don't know where that independence fight comes from. But what I can confirm and I can, um, you know, confidently say is that this the, the, prote- the protests in Iran now especially in the Kurdish, is much stronger in the Kurdish areas. And, and the regime in Kurdish area is, is committing a genocide. It's not only killing people, because in other regions in Iran, they're killing people on the street. But in the Kurdish region, they're, they're committing a genocide. They're going to houses 
and terroring people. And that is because they want to use this independence excuse to, to kill them, which is, which is not what they want right now. Right now, they want the same thing that we want. They want freedom from the regime of Iran. Like, they are Iranians. They're just like us. They just, and by the way, Masa Amini was a Kurdish girl. Yeah, and that's yeah. all Jian uh, Azadi, the chant came from, right? The woman life freedom. And, and, and there are so many, many, many more that are being killed and murdered during the past uh, three months in the Kurdish area. So they're just as angry as us, but the regime is trying to project that Oh, now the Kurdish people want independence. Well, if I want to be honest, even if they have independence from this regime, this monstrous dictatorship regime, I will be happy for them. <laughs> Anyone that has independence from this regime is is safe uh, from them. So, yeah. I know. So they're sort of using this to change the narrative to try and push exactly. it onto this as well. So it's they it's want to narrative to something that the rest of people of Iran say, oh, no, we don't want to support that because we don't want them to take away a piece of the country. But that's not true. The narrative is that we all want freedom from the Islamic regime of Iran. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it's because uh, it's so complex, especially for people from the West and that trying to understand what's happening out there. You know, it was yeah. one of those things that the more I started to learn about Iraq, um, the less I actually knew. <laughs> so it was because it's it, it's such a long history as well. You know, it's basically the the start of the world in terms of where we've documented information. You know, for people thinking back there, you know, all the biblical stuff. That's the part of the world where it's all coming from. So when you read your Bible out here in the West, you know, all these places are, are, are basically dotted around this part of the world. You know, which is uh, and, and then the Quran. You know, right? And it's about your culture. You know. Uh, I come from an ethnic group in Iran called Lur, which is neighbors with Kurds, right? Kurdish and Lur, Lur people are like neighbors and quite close in culture too. And the uh, Kurdish and Lurs are like the very, very original Persians of that region, right? And we have like thousands and thousands of years of culture. And in this culture, women and men are just be equal to each other and just besides each other. And they, the Islamic regime wants to take away all of this from us, forcing all of us. They want to take us to a heaven. We don't want to go to that heaven, right? Like, OK, no, thank you. You go to that heaven yourself. We want to go to the hell with the rest of the world. Why don't you just let us go to that hell? And, you know, and they're taking your identity from you. They're taking everything from you. And the Kurdish people are so, so rich in culture, so rich in in women rights, actually. The women, women in Kurdish culture are very much looked up on. And, and that's the opposite of what the Islamic regime wants. So it's natural that they are, by default, a threat to the Islamic regime. Yeah, because the, the thing about, I remember going to the first time I we went to Dubai in the Middle East, and this was to uh, uh, the Middle East Electricity Exhibition. So, you know, it was for 2007 was the first time I went to Dubai, so or 2006. So, you know, it was quite a long time ago now. And, and remember, you're going by all the different stands, and, and it was all split by, you know, essentially by country. And then the thing that amazed me was when I went to all the other stands and you were going to different places, Oman, and you went to Iraq and you went to, you know, 
Qatar. But when we went to Iran, and I'm thinking at this time, because you're watching the media, so the media is basically saying, oh, well, and I'm thinking the first couple of days, I'm not going to go into the Iran stands and, you know, all the different companies. But when I went there, a, so many of them were from American University anyway. They were the easiest to understand, the most culture. But they, might, they had the most amount of women who were educated as engineers, etc. I know you've got an engineering background, which, you know, the other stands essentially when you went to there, they, you know, they had sort of models and that just at the front of house doing this and the men behind. But Iran yeah. had the first stand and like everyone in there, I speak to a woman and I'm thinking, and I was actually thinking, oh, she'll just be at the front and you've just got to set an appointment to speak to the guy at the back in his little office. That was how they sort of work there. And then you speak to this uh, female there and she'd be an engineer and she just knew everything about oil and gas engineering. It was amazing. And I'm just thinking, and it sort of blows your mind because, you, you know, you're sort of conditioned to think like that. So how is education for women in Iran right now? And is this getting changed as well? Because obviously there must have been the most highly educated people in the Middle East. Yeah, for well, we are. Uh, women in Iran have the highest rate of literacy in the region. So 91%, I believe. And the highest rate of women in STEM in the world, in the world, comes from Iran. 50 mm -hmm. So uh, walking around in streets in, in Iran and you meet plenty of engineers or mathematicians or, you know, technologists that are women, right? So in terms of education, the women could do a lot. However, that is also changing. That is also changing. Now, uh, the government is trying to impose a lot of Islamic education instead, like you know, women now can cannot be like, you know, in, when it comes to medical studies, they can only pick a few lines of medical studies that are re related to women health only. Or or when it comes to, for example, psychology studies, they're replacing the, the modern psychology with Islamic psychology or um, lowering the rate of entrance for engineering in some universities for women. So they're, they try by all means to oppress women. And that's that's one one thing. There's so many other rights that are taken. You don't have a right over your clothes, what you wear. You don't have, and you don't even have a right to choose uh, to educate yourself. So if you if your father decides that you should not go to university, you don't have a right to choose that I want to study, because mm -hmm. you're a woman and you 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 need to be controlled by a man. And if your husband wants to stop your studies. The husband can 100% do that, right? You cannot, as a woman, you cannot leave the country freely. You need to have a permission from your husband or your father to be able to leave the country, right? A written permission, like a letter, basically. Yeah, you need a permission. Like, you know, when you get your passport in Iran as a woman, you cannot get a passport unless your husband signs that I give her permission to have. And that's not all. If you are sick, if you're dying, if you need to have an operation in the hospital urgently, the doctors in the hospital cannot operate on you unless your husband allows them to do that. So, and that is the most ridiculous thing I have seen in my life in Iran, because I, I was in Iran in, in a hospital once and I saw a woman screaming as she was giving birth and she needed a C-section. And I was 
I was nervous. I was starting to get nervous. And I was talking to the doctor. Why is she not getting a C-section? Because the husband did not, the husband thought that she's faking it and needs to do a natural birth. And, and the, then the doctors were not taking to, and the doctors were trying to convince the doctor that she's dying. The baby is dying. But the doctors were not taking her to the operation room and do the operation because the husband did not give that permission. This is the type of world we are facing in Iran. And that's why women in Iran are like, no matter what, I'm going to die in this country. So I might as well now go and fight for freedom of my own and my next generation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so how are they doing the protests right now? Because we've sort of started to see the protests where they're taking off their hijabad and throwing it, taking yeah. it off. But what else are they actually doing right now in terms well, of protests? There are a lot of other ways. They're, they're, they're in the universities, especially in bigger cities. Uh, the students are doing a lot of protests. Uh, they're on strikes. There's a lot of strikes going on today that we're talking. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow is like these three days is a big um, um, program or campaign going on that people are on strike uh, during the day and they're protesting at night time. So uh, all the stores are closed down. Uh, the transportation is on strike. There's a lot of protests every day on the streets. People are fighting. Uh, a lot of protests in universities. University students are on strike. They're not going to their classes. So there's a lot happening. And besides uh, women definitely not wearing hijab on daily basis on the street or in their, uh, you know, daily round. And, and they're getting arrested basically for doing that. They get arrested, they get beaten, they get killed, but they don't care anymore. Unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, it's unbelievable. But, you know, and, and these days I have to say that these are the days that I am 100% very, very sad, you know, but but I don't want, I want to channel my emotions instead of staying sad to be angry. It's a lot to take. It's a lot to take, but I want to stay angry to be able to to be their voice because they cannot talk. And I, I here I can at least be their voice, even though I'm threatened as well, not once or t twice, many, many times, right? But but I, I chose to uh, to be their voice and I continue being being their voice and you know uh, being proud everywhere that I uh, people ask me where I come from or what I do and I, I feel very proud to say I'm an Iranian woman because I think we showed the world how strong and how brave we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah yeah yeah. So yeah, that's amazing. We could just just talk about this all day, Zara. You know, it's just uh, it's super sad. But yeah, as you say, hopefully this is the beginning of the end. Yeah. How old is the current Ayatollah anyway? He looked quite old last time I saw a picture of him. Yeah, he, he is quite old. He's in his 80s, but uh, a lot of people also believe that he's already dead. And this is yeah. a... And then who's next coming behind him? You know what I mean? It's like the guy in North Korea. There's another one coming. You know, conspiracy that he's, he's, he's dead and they're planning for his son to take over. And, you know, then the, the regime is trying to, you know, show some... At the beginning, they were like really harsh, and now they're trying to show uh, some, um, you know, nice faces. Like they they announced uh, two days ago that they're going to shut down the morality police, but you don't, you shouldn't trust that because they're they're, they're just not calling it morality police anymore, right? They're just yeah. going to call it differently. Something in Arabic that no one in the West understands. <laughs> Plus, today, this morning, they they there was a news that. They're replacing morality police with technology, and I was okay. 
uh, these people, these dictators, they don't, they have, um, they have no IQ, so they don't have any technology. So I wonder where they are getting the technology from. Are they going to buy the technology from a Western country and you know con conducting a mass murder with with another technology bought from West? Because that's what they did with filtering internet, right? There was a German company that was supporting that. Even and and, and I have to be honest that the German government took action immediately and you know uh, took care of it. But but I mean that's how it is. They don't have the technology themselves. They need to buy this technology from West. Mm -hmm. Or yeah. maybe <laughs> yeah, Vladimir Putin might sell them some. Yeah. Know? So it's uh, that as well. So, oh, well, it's, um, but yeah, it's been so interesting to learn more and more about this, Sarah, you know. So, well, thanks very much for your time today. We've actually got one comment in here I thought we'll just bring up at the end. Yeah. I don't know if you know, it's uh, Dries Amani. He's talking about the uh, join us in December 14th and 15th in the World Summit in Blockchain and Crypto at Logitalk.com. Is that anything to do with you, Zara? Or is that someone just promoting off your back, uh, all your viewers? Oh, well, that would be great. I, I uh, didn't know about this uh, summit, but I will check it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So thanks very much. Well, thanks very much for your time today, then, Zara. That's been great. Thank and, you. Uh, as you progress with your career and maybe write a book, we'll get you back on the show. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. And thanks for this opportunity. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, thanks. okay. So thanks for everyone at home. You've been watching Boom It's on the Blockchain. My name's Alistair Caithness. Thanks very much. Have a nice day.